Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We'll pick up at verse 41 of Luke 19. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Thank you. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. Saying, if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. When we open up the scriptures and read, there are certain certain things that we should always expect, certain expectations we should have. We should expect the Word of God to do what it says it will do. And the inspired Word of God says it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Many of you have that memorized, no doubt. The word of God, therefore, is a curriculum. And the goal is godliness and good works. Right? Godliness so that we might produce good works. It does its work by the Spirit on God's people. So one... One area of correction that, in my experience, often occurs when I open up the scriptures and read is it corrects my conception of God and his works. By, by cultural osmosis, right, by just our culture sinking into us, seeping in, we inevitably have, we, we inevitably have preconceived or receive notions about who God is and what sort of actions are appropriate to that God, right? And so today, I say a scripture truth like God is love. And you hear that through your cultural filter, right? And, and it's an antinomian filter. It's a filter that has been placed and erected by the sexual revolution sort of filter. It's a postmodern filter, that we hear God is love through. But God is love has a deep scriptural meaning 
But before we get to that, we have to break down our preconceived notions of what that means, right? What that means about who God is. God is love for many means. I can pursue my sexual deviance and God affirms it, right? God is love for many means that God does not make distinctions and so everybody is saved. Sort of a universalism. God is love for many means. God is is all about vibes. So actions mean nothing. Feelings mean everything. And so misconceptions about God and his glory have to be broken down. And wonderfully, God has given us his word in order to break down those misconceptions. It does just that task. The passage before us corrects misconceptions about our God. Taking a broad view, notice the contrast from the first section, verses 41 to 44, to the second section, verses 45 and 46. In the first, Jesus weeps as he approaches Jerusalem. And he contemplates the people rejecting him. He weeps. In the second, Jesus violently, we know this from the other Gospels, violently ejects those Jews who are profiting off of of the worship of God, profaning the worship of God, and ultimately leading people away from God. And that he goes after with violent zeal. So Jesus, in this passage, Jesus is weeping and threatening. He's he's sobbing over the hardness of heart of the people and, and their imminent judgment the harsh judgment that's coming against them. And then he's forcefully denouncing the wickedness of their worship. So both of these actions of Jesus, for me, they destroy sort of my received notions of of who Jesus is. If anything, we've been taught to think of Jesus as the consummate gentleman, coolly dispassionate. Right? Think of the movies from the 50s. Jesus is like a zombie. And yet here we have two situations when he is neither dispassionate nor gentlemanly. He, the one who said, I know the ones I have chosen, weeps over those who have had things hidden from their eyes by God himself. He, the one who said, I am gentle and humble of heart, made a whip and whipped these money changers in the temple and announced that those men were turning the temple into a a robber's hideout. And all of our received notions, our cultural notions of, of who Jesus is and what is appropriate behavior for the Son of God, what is dignified behavior for a godly man, militate against this picture of the Son of God we receive in, in this short passage. Jesus wept over apostate sinners and bloodied the bodies and announced denounce the actions of those who were profaning his father's house. He wept and he whipped. He had a weeping tenderness towards some, and that's where we start. 
And he had a violent anger toward others. And to correct our weak understanding of our Savior, Jesus, the Son of God, we have to come to understand both his, his raw tenderness in this situation and his anger in the subsequent situation. And, and in understanding our God, and in understanding our God right, we come to understand what is required of us. So first is tenderness, his weeping. What is it that Jesus is grieving? He's been working through 33 years of sinless ministry to the people of Israel. And now seeing, seeing the holy city setting before him and the temples at the highest point in the city before him, and he knows all the things that are about to take place in this coming week. And, and what is, how does he respond at that point? He weeps. He cries. And he gives us an explanation. He's, he's crying. He's weeping over this, the, the, these people who have rejected him. And he says, if you had known in this day, even you, I mean, those words right there, even you, his love for these people. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. I mean, these people missed something, didn't they? The things which make for peace. And now those things which make for peace were going to be we're going to be taken away from them, hidden from their eyes, hidden out of sight so that they couldn't see it. And so what is it they missed? What are the things which make for peace? Well, let's not forget what lies ahead for Jesus. The Jews, together with the Romans, are going to crucify him. They're going to kill him. They're going to think they're rendering service to God and killing him. Right? Jesus The Messiah has been in the middle of their city. He's been teaching in the temple. He's been performing miracles day after day. And they cap off his short life with a mock trial, a scourging, public humiliation, and death. And I say, if they had known who it was that was before them, they would not have crucified him. So says the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And then your thoughts start having thoughts because you're like, wait, Jesus had to be crucified. But you get what Paul is saying. They did not recognize the day of their visitation. They did not see Jesus for who he was. And we remember from John 1 that Jesus came to his own, but what? His own did not receive him. And we remember from Isaiah 53, which is prophesied how many centuries prior to Jesus coming in the flesh. Seven centuries. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Jesus had been rejected by the people of Israel. The people in rejecting him had forsaken the things which make for peace. Reject the Son, and you have turned your back on the things that make for peace. And the Father is not propitiated for you. The Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And they refused to listen to him. And accept as truth the things he said. And for anybody to do that, for anybody to refuse to listen to him and accept the things that are written as truth is to ensure that you will fall into the hands of a living God. And to fall into the hands of the living God is, as scripture says, what? A terrifying thing. It's terrible. And Jesus, the Savior of sinners, weeps over their hardness of heart. The spirit of rejection that is blinding the people of the city of David. Contrast that scene of Jesus weeping as he approaches Jerusalem, as he looks, looks upon it. Contrast the scene of Jesus weeping over those who are rejecting him and choosing death to the scene that was about to take place with the disciples who would be gathered together in the upper room for the Passover meal. To those believers gathered, what does he say? He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. For rejecting Jerusalem, these people who did not recognize the time of their visitation, Jesus weeps as he contemplates their impending destruction. Is Is this Jesus weeping for unbelievers? Is this Jesus weeping as he contemplates the the destruction of Jerusalem and the slaughter of her unbelieving children? Yes, it is. That's what's remarkable about this passage, right? And challenging to our reformed categories, isn't it? Dear brothers and sisters, where is our weeping over the death of the wicked? Where's our weeping? Where's our compassion? Where's our kindness? How has our faith in Jesus Christ become so individualistic and so selfish, you know, I'm saved, that we have no heaviness of heart when we see 50 unrepentant homosexuals slaughtered in a murderous rampage? How is it that we can say they had it coming to them? That is wicked, wickedness. Ryle, reflecting on this passage, puts it this way. 
We err greatly if we suppose that Christ cares for none but his own believing people. I mean, you take that statement in isolation, it's kind of like, okay, sort of hurts my reformed sensibilities. And then he goes on, he says this, he cares for all. His heart is wide enough to take an interest in all mankind. His compassion extends to every man, woman, and child on earth. He has a love of general pity for the man who is going on still in wickedness, as well as a love of special affection for the sheep who hear his voice and follow it. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Hardened sinners are fond of making excuses for their conduct, but they will never be able to say that Christ was not merciful and was not ready to save. And so, like the rich man who asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus, it says in the Gospel of Mark, did what? Felt a love for him, even though he did what? He rejected Jesus and walked away an unbeliever. He went away not willing to part with his riches. Whoever parked in that spot, don't park in that spot next week. (laughs) Am I glowing up here? (laughs) Oh, man. In... In seeing Jesus weep over Jerusalem and, and her coming destruction, which is, which is so powerfully described here, her coming destruction that would happen in AD 70, we are taught this. No man, listen to this, no man will be able to impugn God on the great day of judgment claiming that God was merciless. No man will be able to make that accusation before God. The weeping of Jesus proves his great mercy. Do we know such compassion? Do you know such compassion? Do you agonize over friends, family, who rejects that which would make for peace? Right? Again, here's what Ryle says about that. We know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. Oh, Oh, you all know that feeling, right? I just don't want to get mixed up in this. I don't have time. I've got my to-do list. I need to get on. I've got this and this and this and this, and I just can't take time to talk to this eh, riffraff. To care nothing whether our neighbors are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world. But a man of the Spirit is very unlike David, who said, Rivers of waters run down mine eyes, because men keep not the law. He is very unlike Paul, who said, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow of heart for my brothers, the Jews. 
Above all, he is very unlike Christ. If Christ felt tenderly about wicked people, the disciples of Christ ought to feel likewise. And so, and with that challenge to our cold hearts, dear brothers and sisters, we move on. And we read of now of Jesus violently driving men out of his father's house, the temple. Luke includes a few details of this cleansing of the temple. And so, for a few details, we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, which describes this same event. And it says there, then he came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. I read that somewhere that Jerome considered this Jesus' greatest miracle. Perhaps because he was able to perform it without before he he wasn't stopped as he was performing it when he was right in the middle of everything, right in the temple courts. He did it without being restrained. So Jerome considered it his greatest miracle. But, But now here, instead of compassion, we see Jesus showing a consuming zeal for his father's house. And so that which is holy is, is being treated lightly. I mean, Jesus knows that this whole sacrificial system, the animal sacrifices, the entrance into the veil once a year by the high priest, all of that is shortly about to be ended by his work. And theoretically, it ended when the veil was split when Christ died just days ahead, ahead of this. Functionally, it ended Officially, when the court, when the, when the events of verses 43 and 44 happened in AD 70, the temple was then unavailable for sacrifices. It was destroyed and in a heap of ruins. Nonetheless, even knowing that those things were coming and were, were coming to an end, Jesus stops this profaning of his temple, of his father's house. He sees merchants profiting off of the sale of animals for the Passover sacrifices. And here's how one commentator imagines the scene. Jesus has entered the temple area, that is, the the court of the Gentiles. What a sorry spectacle greets his eyes, ears, and even nostrils. He notices that the court is being desecrated. It resembles a marketplace. At this time of year, with Passover so close at hand and pilgrims crowding into the court from everywhere... There are many buyers. They pay high prices for these animals. True, a worshiper can bring in an animal of his own choice, but if he does, he is taking a chance that it will not be an approved animal. The temple merchants have paid the priests generously for their conce- this concession. Some of this money finally reaches the coffers of sly, wealthy, Annas, and clever Caiaphas. And so these, these men in the temple courts are profiting off the worship of God. And Jesus, seeing such sacrilege, puts a stop to it with violent force and the rebukes of Scripture. 
right? Tables are overturned. Change is poured out. Not a vessel does he allow to be picked up and moved from one area to the next. He will not allow any merchandise, any of these vessels to be picked up and moved. He puts a halt to everything. Silence falls over the whole, this, this chaos, right? This hustle and bustle. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has done this. He had done it three years before when he began to preach in Israel. We read about that in John chapter 2. He had cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry. And that cleansing, that's when he fashions a scourge of cords and drives the sellers out of the temple along with all the animals. And he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Now keep in mind, and this is important, keep in mind that this is the court of the Gentiles. There is no other place where the Gentiles can go, right? There's no other place. There's no other place that God-fearing Gentiles might offer praise to God. And the Jews had taken the court of the Gentiles and made it into a Starbucks for full-blooded Jews, And they were hindering these Gentiles from worshiping God and from the nations coming in to give God glory. God requires worship from all the nations. And so, so let me conclude here. I mean, here we have this contrast, and it's, it's the Holy Spirit who's writing, and so it's not coincidental, these, this contrast. You know, though Jesus weeps over the unbelief of Jerusalem, that does not in any way conflict with or diminish the zeal he has for the glory of the name of his Father. He does not contemplate a new direction for the end of his life as if, no, God, your plan has failed. He will accomplish the work of his Father. He will go forward. Jesus, therefore, is the perfect Son to the Father. Happy Father's Day. Jesus is the perfect Son to the Father. And so when the unbelieving Jews are making a mockery of worship and feeding their own greed by perverting worship, he cleanses out his Father's house. And seriously, um, fathers don't want stuff. They want godly, zealous, righteous sons who love the father. They want sons who love the godly character of their fathers and imitate it and defend it. We learn by this that the overarching goal of the work of Jesus is what Jesus would pray during this week in what he call what we refer to as his high priestly prayer. The end of all that he did was to do what he had done forever, which is bring glory to the Father. That goal consumed him. He prayed, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. The very fevered pitch of the fullness of time is descending on the shoulders of the Son of God. He's up to the task being God. He must proceed by faith being a man. And, and 
he, he weeps over their rejection of what makes for peace, and he violently ends what would further hinder others from coming to his father. He's at once broken over the people's hardness of heart and thereby angry at those who would further harden other people's hearts. Jesus truly, truly is a lover of souls. Is he not? He is undone when he thinks of what a person's rejection of him means and then when he sees other people promoting hardness of heart. He he puts an end to it. Think, thinking of those around you. Do you work for those two ends? Do you have a child that is hard of heart? Do you weep for that one? And pray to God for her soul. And seek insofar as it depends on you to remove all stumbling blocks from before that child. The stumbling block of your own sins. Your own hardness of heart and bad attitude. Your your ridiculous words and judgments. Other people's enticements and other people's worldviews and, and perversions. Do you seek to remove those, to cleanse those out of your home? Are you weeping and overturning tables? Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters? Are you weeping for your neighbors and through your words overturning the tables that, that they've set up in their own hearts? All those things hindering from offering true praise to God in Christ. Now, it's easy to get this backwards, though. Sometimes we weep when we should be angry, and we are angry when we should weep. Anger without sin, right? You know I mean mean anger without sin, right? You know Scripture teaches that there is an anger without sin. Ephesians. Sometimes we weep when we should be angry and we are angry when we should weep. When the glory of, listen, this is key. When the glory of the Father is at stake and stumbling blocks are being erected, Jesus overturns tables. When eternal destruction of souls is contemplated, Jesus weeps. If Jesus had overturned tables as he contemplated the death of the children of Jerusalem... He would have been at odds with his father's work for him. If Jesus had wept when he entered the temple courts, witnessing the hindrances and the stumbling blocks to worship, all of that would have just continued. As he sits in the corner and doesn't put an end to those things that hinder the worship of his father. So fathers and mothers, weep at your children's rejection of God. And cry out to God in prayer. But be zealous to remove any further hindrances to their repentance. For ourselves, each of us individually, we have to do this. The elders have to do this work in the church. 
And we hope that even the state would help with this in our society. But the whole point of it boils down to this. Pray and act. Pray and act and in the right order. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for these tears that he he shed for Jerusalem. We thank you for the zeal that he showed in the temple courts for your name. We thank you that he, all of his offices are coming together in these days. Prophet, priest, and king, and he is asserting all of these, fulfilling all these offices even in this one dense week. Lord, I pray that we would we would have a corresponding sadness and a corresponding zeal to your son here, and that it would be us being good mothers and fathers, good lovers of our neighbors, good evangelists for your kingdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.